seated. What a powerful song and great way to be led in worship. I, I don't know about you, but as I was singing and just reflecting on that simple phrase, I surrender, I, I have to confess that in my heart, I, I, I wanted to be very sincere in singing, God, I, I surrender, I'm here to worship you, I, I surrender to you, and yet I also recognize that when I leave this place and I go about the week and I'm at home or I'm in the office or I'm driving in the car, it's not always so easy for me to live surrendered to God. And in this series of, that we're calling Honest to God, we are being reminded about this invitation that God has given us to live surrendered lives Surrendered to the truth of God's word, and yet how easy it is for us to believe the lies that the enemy would sow into our minds and into our hearts to to take away the, the power and the freedom that God's word was intended to give us. And yet sometimes that battle that rages within us goes unseen in those storms in our in our spirits, in those storms in our souls that that, that we, we hide behind the mask of, oh, I'm okay. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good. All the while, that churning is going on in our lives, and we're wondering, what are we missing, and, and how do we get back on track with God? Well, I want to invite you this morning to do just what we sang. Let's, it, as Greg has invited us, let's surrender our hearts and our minds to God and his word this morning. And let's open ourselves to the fact that maybe he is inviting us to see a truth in a new way that will bring freedom and allow us to have not only the courage but the ability to, to fully surrender our lives to God in a new way so that we can celebrate the fact that God has come to give us life and to give it abundantly. Would you pray with me? God, this morning we come recognizing that uh, even though we often desire to live surrendered to your love and surrendered to your grace and surrendered to your truth about who we are and our need for your mercy and your forgiveness in our lives, as we go about our week and we go about our relationships, there are so many times that we, we fall victim to wanting to take back control because we, we believe that your, your word is true and yet we also believe the lies of the enemy that somehow we have to be better. Somehow we have to work for other people's approval and to, to live up to their expectations of us. God, forgive us for the ways that we take our eyes off of Jesus. And this message of endless love and endless grace that you have invited us to experience in our lives. Teach us through your word again today how you are inviting us to a whole new experience of life in Christ. So that we can be a light in the darkness of this world. And that we can share the love and the mercy and the grace that we have received with all those who so desperately need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. 
As we've been going through this series, we've been recognizing, uh, kind of based on the parable of the sower and the seeds that Jesus taught, that, that much of our life, whether it's our walking around, eating, sleeping, working life, or even if it's much of our church life and our religious life and even our spiritual life, is lived above the ground. Uh, we, we, we can live all of the, the things that we see and the, the tasks that we perform and, and all of the goals that we have for ourselves are all kind of lived in the light of day. But as we're going through this series, I think what Jesus is inviting us to recognize is that so much of the spiritual life that he's invited us to experience happens first and foremost under the ground deep in the soil, in the place where, where seeds are planted and roots grow and, and they sink down into the soil of our lives and it's as we allow the word of God to be the, the thing that takes root in, our, in the soil of our lives, that's what leads to the fruit of, of an abundant life that God has invited us to experience. Peter Scazzaro, a pastor on the East Coast who wrote a wonderful book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, suggests that our lives are, are much like an iceberg. About 10% is what you see above the waterline, and about 90% is, is what exists below the waterline. And too often, we're, we're taught by our culture and by our relationships that, that we should never really expose what's below the waterline, but only focus on what's above. But I think as a result of that, we allow the enemy to, to come in and to either steal the word of God and take it away or to, to sow other seeds of, of, of weeds and thorns that will come in and choke out the word of God and cause us to miss the good news that Jesus came. We've looked at the performance trap and the approval trap, and today we're, we're looking at something that goes even a little bit deeper, and we're calling it the blame trap. The blame trap is the false belief that those who fail, including ourselves, deserve to be punished. At its root of all of these traps is fear. We talked about how the performance trap has at its root a, a fear of failure, or the approval trap has at its root a fear of rejection. And as we look to the blame trap, what we see at the, at the root is this fear of punishment. And, and what we do is we don't recognize that we walk around fearing with uh, the, uh, the anxiety that somehow if we mess up or if we make a misstep or we, we don't live up to other people's expectations, we're going to incur their wrath, their anger, their punishment, their rejection. And so that leads us to our own propensity to want to lash out and punish others. As we talked about last week, the, the anti-golden rule to do unto others before they do unto you. And the logical result of Satan's deception in our lives is that we live lives with this free-floating fear and we experience anxiety and, and what we've come to call stress in our lives all the while thinking that somehow this is just a part of, of modern life. It's a part of the busyness of our culture. We just run faster and faster, accepting the fact that we live these anxious, hurried, fearful lives, not recognizing that in the midst of our busyness, we haven't taken the time to pay attention to what's below the surface. And somehow underneath there, we've allowed ourselves to really believe the lie that we need to be better, we need to be smarter, we need to work for other people's approval because if we don't, somehow we're going to find punishment at the end of the road. 
These feelings of anxiety and stress are symptoms of a deeper fear that we live in our lives, indicating that we're not basing our thoughts and our perspectives about ourselves and those around us on God's truth, but we fall in victim to Satan's lies. In the book of 1 John, he talks about how we know the truth of God's love for us and how this knowledge, this truth is intended to be something that gives us an an anchor for our souls as we sing in that song that, that we've learned here at the church. It gives us that foundation that we can build a life on. But if we don't really believe that that truth is true, then we can begin to believe these other lies that the culture and those around us wanted to believe. He says in verse 13 of chapter 4 from 1 John, This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we've talked about how the spirit of God was given by Christ not only to reveal God's truth to us, but also to be that confirmation that that truth is real. And we have that power. We have that encouragement. We have that presence of God with us every day, not just here in church on Sunday morning, to remind us of these truths so that we can live them out every day and every hour. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And, we, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Catch that though. He says we know. We have this intellectual knowledge that this is true. But he also says, and we rely on this truth. If you rely on something, it's something that you you come back to over and over again. It becomes a need that you have. It becomes something that you you feed on with your soul. But too often, I think we're tempted to, to, to believe the truth that God has saved us in Jesus, but then we rely on our own strength, or we rely on the approval of others, or we rely on our ability to perform to somehow find meaning and value in our lives. What John is saying here is that we not only know that God loves us, but we rely on this love to build our lives on. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. This is how, we, this is how love was made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And God's desire is that we are made perfect in his love. Not perfect in meaning that we'll never make a mistake or we'll never fail again or we'll never disappoint one another or hurt one another. That's not what perfection is here. We are made perfect in God's love in that biblical sense of shalom, as we've talked about, that we are made complete, we are made whole. We, we are able to live out the purpose for which we were created, which is to bring glory to God and to share his love with one another, even when we make mistakes, even when we fall down. But when we spend time heaping blame on ourselves and others for those mistakes that we make and those sins that we commit, we ignore the truth of God's propitiation for our sin. That's the the big theological word for today, propitiation. It's kind of a silly word, silly sounding word. But essentially, propitiation has to do with the fact 
that God's wrath has been turned away from you and I. And most of us know, right, that, that if somebody does something unjust or unfair to you, an appropriate response is to be angry, to be righteously indignant, to say, hey, that was not fair. That was wrong. In fact, we get angry all the time. If you've ever worked in retail, you know customers are more than willing to come with all their anger and say, hey, your product failed. This wasn't fair. In fact, we're conditioned by our culture that the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And if you are loud enough and you're intense enough and you express your anger strongly enough, you can usually get people to cow to whatever it is that you're trying to get them to do. Most of us would agree that anger is an appropriate response when someone has been unjustly wronged. It's no different with God. God is a holy God. He had created this world to be a paradise of love and and a, a place for humanity to live and experience relationship with him. And yet sin and brokenness has crept in. Why wouldn't he be angry? But his anger isn't at you and at me. It's at the brokenness and and the, the sin that has marred his creation. God is righteously angry about sin. And yet, what we learn in the Bible and what we learn from Jesus is that although he's righteously angry at sin, he is also infinitely loving and full of mercy and grace. See, providing his only begotten son as the propitiation for our sin was the greatest possible demonstration of God's love for us. Christ's sacrifice on our behalf satisfied that need to to stand up for his own justice so that he could also say, it's okay, I love you in spite of the fact that you are experiencing the brokenness and the sin of this fallen world. You see, because of Jesus, God no longer looks at us with eyes of judgment and condemnation. A, a, a simpler and maybe a little bit deep, more deeply personal way of saying this for you and me, which I think is one that often miss, we, we miss, is God is not angry with you. God is not angry with you. How often do we mess up or make a mistake, though, and, and become fearful that, oh, no, God is, God is angry with me, or God is going to punish me, God is going to zap me because I'm making these mistakes, right? In fact, if we have difficult circumstances and things aren't going our way, often our, our temptation is to go, God must be punishing me because he knows A, B, and C about my life. But you see, that's the lie of the enemy that comes in and says, because you're broken, because you're sinful, because you're fallen, God's going to be angry with you. And you should shrink from God. You should hide from God. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, you should run away from God because you don't want to see God when he's angry. But Jesus comes and says, no. God loves you. God's not angry with you. God's anger against sin and brokenness has been, has been satisfied because he says, I will take the punishment for sin upon myself as a way of demonstrating how much I love you and I care about you. So you don't need to be afraid of the punishment for sin anymore. And you can learn to live in the freedom and the joy of life that I had intended. All of us fail, but this doesn't mean that we are all failures. 
And it doesn't mean that God is angry with us because he's given us his spirit. We know and we rely on this love that he has for us. But when we fall victim to the the blame trap, we tend to make two major errors in our lives. Criticism and judgment. We criticize people around us because we are fearful that maybe their mistakes are going to fall on us, and we're going to get blamed for the mistakes that they make. Or we, we see ourselves in their shortcomings, and because we are often angry and, at, at ourselves, it's, it's easy for us to lash out at one another because of our own fear and anxiety that somehow we're not measuring up. Or in the worst case, we can, we can begin to believe that somehow God has made us the agents of his condemnation for everyone else. Right? We have this over, uh, overactive sense of justice and right and wrong, and so we take it upon ourselves to be God's mouthpieces of condemnation for all those around us. Bob, Robert McGee, in his book, The Search for Significance, which again, we are kind of using as our inspiration book for this series, says that if we allow performance to reflect our value and our failures to make us believe that we are somehow unworthy of approval in other people's eyes, then we'll usually feel completely justified in criticizing and condemning everyone who fails or makes a mistake, including ourselves. See, whenever we feel that we've fallen short of what is expected of us in terms of performance or approval, we're likely to search for a reason for that failure or a person to lay blame on, a scapegoat to to take the heat. Whether consciously or unconsciously, we'll tend to point an accusing finger finger at somebody because you know that punishment is coming somewhere and we want to avoid it as much as possible. You could say it's a self-protection mechanism. If possible, we'll try to place the blame on others and thus fulfill the the law of retribution from the Old Testament, right? An eye for an eye. You do that to me, I'll do that to you. Blaming others also puts a safe distance between us and their mistakes and our fragile sense of self-worth. Yet more often than not, if we really are going to be honest with ourselves and honest with God, that accusing finger that we're so quick to point at others is usually pointed right back at ourselves. And how hard is it to take that critical voice out of our own head that often comes with words like, oh, you're so stupid. You did it again. How, why, why do I keep doing that? And we, we name call and we berate ourselves and we beat ourselves up, somehow thinking that if we beat ourselves up enough that somehow maybe we'll negatively motivate ourselves to do it differently next time or to, to be a better person. And the more we beat ourselves up and berate ourselves and point that accusing finger inwardly, the less we are able to really allow God's mercy and his grace and forgiveness to give us the peace of God in our lives. And how easy it is then to turn that judgmental finger towards other people when we don't really love ourselves. How easy for, it, for us to be critical and judgmental of those around us. But, McGee says in his book, any form of condemnation is a powerfully destructive tool in the hands of the enemy that says, I will make you sorry for what you did. He tells the story of Ellen who discovered that her 15-year-old daughter was pregnant. She spent a week without sleep, tossing and turning, he said, trying to determine who was at fault. 
Was it her daughter who was at fault, who brought this reproach upon the family and, 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 and made this spectacle that, that she was so embarrassed about? Or, or was she to blame for failing as a mother? How could her daughter have made such, such crazy choices if she had just been a better mother? Maybe it was her fault, or maybe it was the father's fault because he spent too much time at work and wasn't around to, to really raise their daughter well enough. All Ellen knew is that someone had to take responsibility for this crisis. And as a result, she lived with this fear and this anxiety and this stress that this whole situation was going to somehow bring condemnation and and punishment upon their family. Rather than allowing the truth of the biblical witness to address our problems as people, we often resort to either accusing someone else or needing to find somebody to blame to take responsibility for our problems. So many times our conflict in marriages is often about this dance of assigning and avoiding blame. Well, it's your fault. You you didn't take the trash out. Well, I didn't see the trash. Well, if you cared about me, you would notice the trash. Well, if you cared about me, you would tell me that the trash was full and it was time to take it out. And in the extreme cases, these relationships get so conflicted that that many times I'll have couples come in and sit down in the office and want to talk, and the first thing they want to do is whip out the list of everything they have against the other person. And so we have to start the whole session by saying, you know what? It's not about assigning blame. It's not about pointing the finger at the other person. If you want to reconcile, if you want to find healing, if you want to overcome the conflicts in your relationships, you have to stop blaming one another and you have to start to look at yourself and say, what can I do to improve the relationship and make it better? But you see, first you have to have the freedom of of forgiveness and understanding that we all make mistakes and none of us is perfect. And then we can start to say, okay, in our brokenness and in our frailty as human beings, knowing that we are two people who are just trying to make it work, then you can start to say, how can we encourage one another? How can we help one another? How can we take responsibility for our part and, and, and then be loving and help each other grow and improve? You see, then you have this positive motivation that comes out of, of a place of forgiveness and love. And allows you to build towards a positive future. Because I guarantee you, condemnation and judgment and blaming never builds anything good. It's always about tearing down. And it puts us on the defensive and always at risk of wanting to blame the other first. So that we don't take the blame. In the most extreme cases, in the often devastating circumstances, we see this in our world. And we hear these tragic stories, and we know that the brokenness of families in our culture, where, where mom and dad finally can't figure out how to make it work, and they decide they have to, to, to separate, it's often the kids who, in the midst of that, will somehow take it, the blame on themselves and think, somehow it was my fault, that if I had been a better kid, if I had been more lovable, that somehow mom and dad wouldn't have split. And the enemy is just laughing. Because he has taken us so far away from the truth of God's love that says it's all about mercy and forgiveness and love. And if we get that right, then we can weather every storm and we can overcome every conflict and we can solve every obstacle. See, whenever someone fails, we need to affirm God's truth about them. 
That yes, there is brokenness. Yes, we make mistakes. But that doesn't mean that God loves us any less. It doesn't mean that God's forgiveness is any less available. It doesn't mean that every day is still not a new day to start fresh in Jesus Christ. The truth of God's perspective can change our condemning attitude to an attitude of love and a desire to help. See, believing these truths in the core of our being was God's intention in sending his son and in sharing his spirit. And as we live in the truth of God's love and his forgiveness for us, we will gradually become more and more able to be people of love and mercy and grace, forgiving others even as God has forgiven us. Now, this doesn't mean that we become doormats. It doesn't mean that we overlook abusive behavior. It doesn't mean that we accept all kinds of sinful lifestyles just because God says we should forgive and and go along and get along. That's not what the Bible is teaching us. We'll continue to recognize that sin continues to mar God's creation and that God has given us his love and his mercy and his grace, not as a free license to go and sin some more, but to be set free from sin so we become agents of God's creation, bringing healing and restoration to what is broken and what is lost. As we depend less and less on other people and those around us for our self-worth, and the sins and the mistakes that we make become less of a threat to our own sense of identity, we'll desire to help others more and more see the same truth of God's love that we see, that God has shown to us. I mean, Jesus said that the greatest command is to love God and love others as yourself. But if we don't really love ourselves, how can we really love others? In Luke 6, verses 27 and 28, Jesus said, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Wow, that's kind of countercultural, isn't it? Christ didn't come to die for the lovely and the righteous and the holy. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As we grow in our understanding of his love for us and we continue to understand that he's rescued us from the righteous condemnation that we deserve for our sins, we gradually become more and more patient and kind with everyone around us, starting with our own family and our own church family and those in our culture that are in desperate need of this kind of love and grace. I want to turn briefly to story out of Jesus' life in The Gospel of John, chapter 8. Looking at verse 3 and following, Jesus was teaching, and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, it says, brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. She was caught in the act. In the law of Moses, commands us to stone such women... Now, what do you say? See, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. 
Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. You see, in this story, these religious people, these perps, the professional religious people were coming to try and trap Jesus, right? They wanted to force him to sacrifice his commitment to God's mercy and grace and love that he came to preach with the arrival of the kingdom of God. And in their minds, this grace that he was preaching was a threat to their whole religious system because God had given them the law. They knew right from wrong, and they they had this law, and they were able to use it to judge all those around them of who is in and who is out, who is good and who is bad. And yet, here came this would-be Messiah preaching grace and forgiveness and love. This guy's going to threaten our whole church system here. And so they tried to come up with a trap for him and get him to go against this mercy and grace of God that he was preaching in order to uphold this religious law that God had given them. See, they had this mask of religiosity that somehow blinded them not only to their own sinfulness and their complicity in the way that they have mistreated this poor woman. I mean, if you think about the story, here they've dragged this woman into this public square, surrounded her with these angry men who are going to pick up rocks and say, where's the guy? Why isn't he there? You know, did they, did they even consider the, his culpability in, in the whole relationship? Were they even really caring about what this woman had done, or were they just using her to try to get to Jesus? How, how much of their sin is so evident in this story that, that they're not even aware of? In their, in their righteous-mindedness, they're committing sin after sin, trying to trap Jesus And Jesus, in his wisdom, don't you want to know what he wrote in the dirt? Oh, man, I wish I knew. Someday we'll know. In his wisdom, let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. Oh, man. And if you think about it, who are the first to walk away? The older one. Those who had lived long enough to be able to reflect back on their life and recognize, you know what? I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. And who am I to really look down my nose and judge somebody else? If you're going to make me be perfect before I can judge others, you're right, Jesus. I'm going to drop my rock. I'm going to walk away. You see, in, in God's eyes, I believe that This story illustrates for us that all of us have committed what the Old Testament would call a spiritual adultery with God. We've all wandered away after other lovers. We've all looked for our own sense of self-worth and value in many things other than God. And we too need God's mercy and forgiveness and grace in our lives. The question really is, who are we in this story? Are we the woman who's caught in adultery and, and, and exposed and shamed for the sins in our life and our brokenness? Are we the, the religious righteous who have encircled her to, to judge her and to throw rocks at her? 
Or can we be like Jesus, who in the midst of people who are broken and hurting in a world that wants to condemn them and tell them that they're worthless, that we can enter in with justice and grace at the same time. See, our response should be loving affirmation first and foremost, and then possibly compassionate correction. But when we lead with judgment, when we lead with condemnation, we're opening the door for the enemy to come in and somehow let us believe that God gave us his law so that we could beat other people over the head with it. But that was never God's intention. See, if we have trusted Christ for our salvation, God has forgiven us and wants us to experience his forgiveness on a daily basis in our own lives. But we first have to learn to forgive ourselves. It's our weaknesses, the Apostle Paul tells us, that compels us to come back to the mercy and grace of God day after day. I don't know if you remember the song we, we sang last week, and we, we sing it periodically here, but I, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need thee. And even today, as we We're challenged to surrender ourselves to God. I felt that tension in my own soul. Yeah, God, I want to surrender to you. And yet I want to hang on to that control. It's so hard in those deeper places, in those quiet places of our own souls, to truly live open-handed and to surrender ourselves to the truth of God's love in our lives. The Bible tells us that we have an accuser his name is Satan. That's, that's what Satan means. It means adversary, like legal counsel who's going to stand in court and argue against us, and he's going to point the finger accusing us. Oh, God, if you, if you knew what, what these people were doing. And it's the accuser who stands before God and stands before us trying to get us to, to, to point that accusing finger at one another and, and, and turn it on ourselves. And, and we know when that accuser has finally ultimately gotten the victory is when he gets us to point that accusing finger at God himself. Say, God, you did this. How could you let this happen in my life? If God, if you loved me, you wouldn't have let me experience this. You wouldn't have let this happen. You wouldn't have allowed me to experience this difficulty and this pain and this suffering. And when the devil has won, when he's got us to believe that the very God who gave his son so that we could be in relationship with him would somehow want to punish us over and over again. Instead, we learn that the truth is that we are deeply loved by God. We are in a perfect love that should cast out all fear as we allow that love to flood our hearts and to flood our minds and to allow us to build a life on mercy and grace as we live in him. This morning, as we, as we go about the rest of our day and our week, I want us to contemplate. Let us be honest with ourselves and be, be honest with God. When you experience the, the anxiety of your day and, and, the, and the stress of your week, how much of that stress and that anxiety is a symptom of a deeper fear that is a symptom of a deeper lack of trust in the truth that God has already forgiven you and there's nothing more that you need to do to earn his love or to live in his grace than to just surrender and allow it to be the truth 
that shapes who you are. Would you pray with me?